Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We have finally reached the chapter that is undoubtedly most prominent in our memories when it comes to 1 Corinthians. Even those outside of the church have heard this passage read at a wedding or printed on the front cover of a funeral bulletin or on the plaque in somebody's home. This chapter is everywhere, and in one sense it should be. Paul outlines some of history's most beautiful prose about the most central of Christian virtues. And yet we've all probably seen this passage used in ways that Paul would have never have intended. People quote this passage about love, for example, to argue for tolerance and inclusivity, for chastening anything that sounds like judgmentalism. How dare you judge me in this? That's not loving. When divorced from the context of the preceding and following chapters, this passage can be contorted, it can be twisted, it can be manipulated into saying all kinds of things that Paul would never have affirmed. So, One of my goals as we slowly make our way through this chapter about love is to keep our eye on the context, both the immediate context of chapters 12 and 14, but also the context of the letter. And to that end, we need to remember that Paul is writing not a theological treatise about love. He's writing a letter to a divided church, divided over their preferences, for example. Some of them like Peter's preaching better. Some of them like Paul. Some of them thought Apollos was the best preacher. They were divided over issues of sin and sexuality. They were divided over ethics. Can we eat this meat that's been sacrificed to the idols in the pagan market or not? Most recently, we've seen they were divided over the gifts. Those who had speaking gifts, impressive gifts like prophecy and tongues They're the really mature ones. And those with less impressive gifts, like mercy and hospitality, they're not so big. But as we'll soon see, Paul chops all of that off at the knees. He shows us in our text that no gift, no matter how impressive, is a sufficient indicator of our spiritual maturity. Love must motivate. Love must dominate. Love must permeate every inch of our hearts, every ounce of our service for the kingdom. That's where we're headed. But let's begin by reading our passage, 1 Corinthians 13, which I will read in its entirety each week, partly because it's a short, cohesive whole, but also with the hope that this passage will linger in our ears and in our hearts In fact, it would be a worthwhile endeavor for you to try and memorize this passage of Scripture in the weeks that I'm preaching through it. Let's look at our text and hear God's Word to us. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word for us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you at your invitation. You beckon us to come before you with boldness because of the work of our faithful Savior, because of our elder brother, because of our high priest. And Lord, we pray that as we come to you, we would remember who you are, we would remember your promises, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that you will give us the food that we need from your word. We ask that you would do that. Build us up and make us more loving. Make us like yourself. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My sermon tonight will begin by looking at the first three verses on the necessity of love, and then we'll start into the description of love in verse 4, getting only through patience, which I hope you'll exercise towards me as we go slowly through this passage. But let's begin with the necessity of love in the first three verses. Verse 1 says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a banging, a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And Paul begins here with a series of hypothetical overstatements in order to prove a point. And verse 1 begins by highlighting the gifts of speaking, the gifts of eloquence. Some of the Corinthians were thinking that they were really gifted and special because they had these speaking gifts, like prophecy or tongues. But Paul starts to bring them back down to size by using hyperbole. It doesn't matter if you speak in the most impressive tongues of men. Without love, you're nothing. Paul even supposes speaking in the tongues of angels, which is a very interesting phrase, very unique, not without mountains of speculation by commentators. I'm not convinced that by mentioning the tongues of angels, Paul is talking about some super spiritual heavenly language that's known only by those with the gift of tongues. Mostly because Paul says in verse 8 and 9 that tongues pass away. And if angelic tongues pass away, then I wonder what the angels will speak in the new heavens and the new earth. Rather, I think Paul is simply using overstatement to make his point. It doesn't matter how impressive your speech, your gifts of speech are. Even if you were able to speak as blessedly as an angel, without love you're nothing. In fact, the I am here, I am nothing is in the perfect tense, and so we might say, I become nothing. If I have these super impressive gifts of tongues and eloquence, 
but I have not love, I have become nothing more than a banging gong, a clashing cymbal. I'm not merely nullifying the effects of my gift. I'm not introducing some sort of inefficiency. I'm actually detracting from their usefulness. I'm not I'm undermining my goals. I thought about for a minute bringing a little gong up here and banging it to prove a point. Bang, bang, bang. And in less than 60 seconds, you would all want to run me off the platform. But that's exactly the point. The person gifted with speaking gifts but uses them without love is not merely ineffective, though they're certainly that. They're annoying, they're repulsive. They repel others by their lack of love. They undermine their message of gospel love, thereby robbing their gifts of any meaningful spiritual value. And then in verse 2, Paul continues this list of hypothetical superlatives. If I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move a mountain, but I have not love, I am nothing. So maybe you don't have a speaking gift, a gift of eloquence, but you have gifts of wisdom, of knowledge, of discernment. You might have access through the Holy Spirit to a level of spiritual understanding previously unknown to humankind. All this wisdom and insight, but without love, you're nothing. Your doctrinal knowledge without love is nothing. Your confessional prowess without love it's useless. Your hermeneutical acumen without love, it's rubbish. Children, your catechism questions that you've memorized without love, they're meaningless. Adults, the books that you've read without love, they mean nothing. To borrow some help from D.A. Carson, who I found increasingly insightful on this passage actually, he says, if Paul were talking to us today, he'd probably apply it this way. He would say, you Christians who prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information you can cram into your heads, I tell you that such knowledge proves nothing. And you who affirm the Spirit's presence in your worship services because of your style of worship and your understanding of the regulative principle, if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you are spiritually bankrupt. Paul goes on, if you had faith to move mountains, what would that be like? See, some people seem to have a special gift of faith, and they see a problem in their life, and they see something that's, that they can't figure out, they don't know what to do. Rather than running to despair, some people immediately trust that God's going to handle it. Their faith seems to have a resiliency, a durability that's beyond most Christians' abilities. Perhaps you've read about some of these people in biographies, church history books, William Carey, George Mueller. Paul's point is if, if you had faith like them, to never be discouraged, to never once had a doubt come into your mind, never once think that God's not going to rescue this and bring glory out of it, but you didn't have love, you have nothing. But it's not merely the gifts of eloquence or knowledge or faith, it's also our acts of devotion, 
that can be robbed of spiritual significance if they lack love. That's what verse 3 is about. If I give away everything that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I have nothing. I gain nothing. None of us, I would imagine, have ever given everything away. Like all of it. Everything you own. But perhaps some of you did really sacrifice hard for someone else in life. Maybe it was financial. Maybe you opened your home to someone else. Maybe you gave great effort and energy over a long time to help somebody in need. Whatever it was, without love, that act of generosity means nothing. Which is actually the opposite of what the world thinks. The world is fascinated by those people that demonstrate bold generosity. If you gave away everything you owned, you'd be on the news, actually. This Christian abandons everything, gives it away to the poor. You'd be on the news. But such devotion, even with all of the world's praise and the recognition without love, is meaningless. It's vain. It's empty. It's ultimately selfish, actually. So too acts of physical devotion and determination. If you have the willpower to hold on to your faith and not recant even when being burned at the stake, which would be an impressive thing, but you did it out of pride or out of self-satisfaction or even fear, anything other than love, then your sacrifice gains you nothing. Acts of immense devotion, devoid of love, are no sure guide to genuine spiritual maturity. And I think that's the key takeaway for us. Carson again says, By themselves, your spiritual gifts attest nothing spiritual about you. And you who prefer to attest to your rich privilege in the Holy Spirit by your works of generosity must learn that generosity apart from Christian love says nothing about your experience with God. You remain spiritually bankrupt, a spiritual nothing if love does not characterize your experience of whatever gift God has assigned to you. I tried to think of a biblical example of this principle for us, and God reminded me of a book that I ran across some time ago by a Presbyterian pastor from the 1800s named William Plummer. And he wrote a book on God's providence, and one chapter in that book is about lessons from the life of Judas. Judas, we might say, is a clear biblical illustration of these first three verses. Judas was selected by Jesus himself and put into a prominent, perhaps the most prominent office outside of Jesus's in the church. He was stationed above almost every man and woman ever created, given special privileges to be near the Son of God himself for several years. Judas was numbered among the twelve who were sent out on missions, and he was among the apostles, all of whom were performing all manner of impressive spiritual works. They were casting out demons, they were healing the blind, they were healing the lame and the sick. And we have nothing in the Gospels to teach us that Jesus was inferior to the other apostles in this regard. Nothing to give us an indication that he was somehow less spiritual than the rest. In fact, Judas was so trusted that he was given charge of keeping the finances. He held the purse. 
No hint that any of the apostles had a problem with that delegation either. And when Jesus himself said to the apostles, one of you is going to betray me, they all looked around. Is it me? Is it him? Who's it going to be? They had no idea. Judas had performed the same kinds of works. He had outwardly professed the same kind of truths. He had preached the same kinds of sermons calling for people to trust in Jesus. He had all the outward signs. He had the gifts. We would say, humanly speaking. And yet, what does he lack? He lacked love. He lacked the one thing needed to give him any lasting spiritual vitality or effectiveness. He lacked what separates true sheep from the goats. Genuine love. Outwardly impressive gifts and acts of devotion and of service are of no sure value in determining our spiritual authenticity or maturity. There are very gifted, immature people. Paul would have us to know, and Judas is an illustration of all this, and so I call on you to reflect tonight. Reflect upon yourself. Why do you do what you do? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray to God? Is it just because that's what I'm supposed to do? I've got a to-do list that I need to check. Why do you give money? Why do you give generously? Why do you teach? Why do you sing in church? Why do you host people in your homes? Why do you do the things you do? Some people do it simply because it's natural for them. It's easy. They're wired that way. It actually takes no effort or love for them to do something and do it well. Some people do it in order that they might feel satisfied, that I might feel fulfilled. I will sacrifice outwardly for this, in this big way so that I can feel like I've done something important. Some people do it so that everyone around them will see it and think they're so great. Some people do it For the opposite reason, because they're afraid of what everybody else around them would think of them if they didn't do it. Parents, why do you train your children the way that you do? So that people will think you're a great parent? So that your child will end up in college and have a great job and have a great destiny? Or do you do it out of love? Students, why do you work hard in your studies? Is it to keep your parents off your back? Or is it out of love for them and for God? Children, why do you obey your parents? So that they won't hassle you? So that you'll simply be seen as the good child, not like the other one over there? You do it out of competition with your brother or sister? Are you motivated out of love to God and to your parents? All of us. Why do we perform Christian duties? Simply out of a sense of duty or out of loving devotion to the God who has saved us? We should be thoughtful. We should be careful and reflect upon our motives. And we need to reflect deeply upon our hearts. Judas looked to all the world to be a spirit-empowered, spirit-led apostle of Jesus Christ, devoted and gifted in all the supernatural ways. But God saw his heart, just like he sees our hearts. 
If love isn't what is motivating our hearts, then we need to know that we're nothing. We're a banging gong to our children. We're a crashing cymbal to those around us. And worse, if we lack love to God, you might be a Judas, as self-deceived as he was. Doubtless he thought for a long time that he was exactly what he acted like. We need to reflect, consider, test yourself, the Bible says. For those who see heart motivations that are impure, that are inconsistent, not always driven by love, motivated out of fear or pride or anything else, then you need to think about Jesus. Remember Jesus. Jesus was perfectly loving, and He remains unfailingly so, even today. No selfish motivation was ever within Him. No pretense No confusion, no arrogance, no fear of what other people are going to say about him. Perfectly ordered love motivated everything that he did. And the intensity and the authenticity of Jesus' love is seen in his sacrifice for sinners. Driven by love, he willingly died for the unlovely. That's us. He died for the selfish, the greedy, the proud. The self-interested. He died for sinners like me and like you. Do you trust in that Jesus? Do you know Him and love Him? I'm not asking how well you love Him. Don't base your assurance on how well you serve Him. Jesus served Jesus. Judas served Jesus well for a season, outwardly speaking. I'm asking you if you love Jesus. Demons know Jesus. And demons also believe Jesus' words to be true. But they do not love Him for it. They hate Him for it. Do you know Jesus and His promises? Do you believe His promises? And do you love Him for His promises and for His gift to you? His forgiveness. If you know Him and you love Him, then you're saved. You don't have to live in fear of being a Judas. You've been washed, forgiven, saved, made complete. God has promised to hold you and keep you and to sanctify you to the very end. Rejoice in that truth. Let Jesus' work produce within you a heart of love that overflows into acts of service with whatever spiritual gift you have. But if you don't love Christ, then you need to be warned. Your apparent gifts, your acts of devotion, your acts of service are ultimately meaningless as measures of your spiritual condition. Without love, none of it matters. And nothing can make up for love's lack. No act of devotion, no amount of willpower, muscle through, determination, no studying, no knowledge, no gifts of service, generosity, no fasting, no prayer. None of it is of any lasting spiritual value apart from love. In fact, if you remain devoid of love for God, then each of those gifts and each of those acts of devotion, every dollar given to charity, every prayer prayed apart from love will serve as a testament to your own vanity and pride on the day of judgment. Without love, every act of feigned religious fervor becomes a vain attempt at hypocritical posturing. Without love, everything we do is self-interested and self promoting. And thus, if you remain cold in your heart, unmoved by God's love, you will have the fate of Judas. 
condemned to hell forever, judged for your failure to love God despite all of your vain attempts to appear religious and spiritual. So I warn you, don't let that be your fate. Trust in Jesus today and know that He has come to forgive the hypocrites and the proud. He's ready to wash the self-interested and the unfaithful. He can give you a heart of love. He can give you the posture of love, the motivation of love. He can save you from your own sin and make you pure. Trust in Him. Don't let Judas be your guide. Because without love, you gain nothing. But with love, true love, God-derived love, you gain everything. So now that Paul has cut us down a little bit with the first three verses, describing what love is not, let's turn our attention to a more positive study, which will build out, one fruit at a time, exactly what love is. We're not going to make it too far this evening, but we'll finish by looking at love is patient. Verse 4, love is patient. But first, let's talk about love. The word that Paul uses here is not eros, from which we get the word erotic, a sensual love. It's not phileo, brotherly love, like Philadelphia. This is agape. In fact, your older translations of this word here would translate it not as love, but as charity, following John Wycliffe's first English translation. But I think love is the best translation for us today. Agape is used a hundred times, over a hundred times in the New Testament. It's also the main word used for love throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so what, what does that tell us? Well, it's significant for us to note that the New Testament never uses the noun agape in negative context. Rather, its meaning always seems to be related to the phrase, the love of God including the love for fellow believers, even the love of one's enemies that God's love evokes within us. It means that agape is a lot like the words in the New Testament for faith or for righteousness or for grace. Each of them has their origin in God and God alone. It's not something that we manufacture within us. Man can feel certain kinds of love naturally. He feels an erotic love towards his spouse. He feels phileo love towards his friends. But agape is a kind of love that is divine in origin, and it's ordered towards the good of the beloved, the one being loved. It's shown often regardless of the loveliness of the beloved. It means agape is shown often despite the unworthiness of the one being loved. For example, we, we can look at the book of Romans. God's electing and redeeming love is shown to sinners despite them having earned just wrath for themselves. Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or remember Romans 8, what does it say? What shall separate us from the power of Christ? No. What shall separate us from the justice of Christ? No. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nothing. Not death, nor life, or angels, or powers, or things present, or things to come, and so on. It's important for us to understand what this love is so we don't get off track as we're going along. There are bounds to what this love can and cannot mean. There are places it cannot go. 
We can't take the word love and make it elastic. It's bound by God's own character because it originates in Him. It's bound by holiness and righteousness. But it's not oriented towards the self, but towards the good of the beloved. It's a love that's willing to sacrifice the self for a good of another. And that's the foundation. It has to be if love is ever going to be patient. Let's look at that. What does it mean for love to be patient? Does does patience mean that we're willing to put up with whatever without getting upset? Is that all that patience means? Does it, does it mean that we just don't raise our voice? Or that we never show passion? Or that we just never rebuke or we never confront? Patience here, which we could also translate it as forbearance or long-suffering, is not the absence of passions or emotions in a man. It's not some sort of stoic unresponsiveness as if you could just poke him all day and he won't snap at you. Rather, patience is the opposite of being short-tempered. It's the most succinct definition there is. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. It's the ability to use the will, to use self-control, to refuse to be controlled by external circumstances and choose rather to submit to some kind of unpleasantness for the good of another. Patience or slowness to anger is one of the primary characteristics that God uses to speak of Himself in the Bible. Exodus 34, God puts Moses in the rock and God passes by revealing Himself and He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Numbers 14, right after the people rebel again, Moses intercedes on their behalf to God and he quotes God's own words in their defense to God. Moses says, and now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying to us, the Lord is slow to anger. Nehemiah likewise confronts the people in chapter 9 of his book, saying that they refuse to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders that God had performed among them, but they were stiff-necked. They appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Our God is indeed a patient God. If we recall the pattern of the Old Testament, there's a cycle. God gives His people a position of privilege, out of grace. They choose idolatry and sin. Everything goes poorly. God shows mercy and patience with them and pulls them back up from the mire. And then they do it again and again and again and again. Just like His people do today. Again and again. He is patient. He is long-suffering even with a stiff-necked people. He forbears their repeated failings and rebellions, and He does that with with us too, doesn't He? How many of us are still battling the same sin that we struggled with a week ago? How about a year ago? How many of you still struggle with the same sin that you were struggling with a decade ago? 
I like some of your honesty. Saw some hands raised. See, we're like the dog that runs back to its own vomit. We're repeatedly going back to the thing that made us sick. And yet God is patient with us. He doesn't cast us off, even though we may deserve it. He doesn't chastise us, even though we do deserve that. He doesn't condescendingly lecture us and act, to, uh, act towards us like we were ignorant fools. He doesn't crush us with the, all the consequences. No, he's our good shepherd. He reminds us of His love for us by reminding us of Jesus again. He speaks to us in His Word, and we hear that voice because we are His sheep. And He forgives us over and over and over even though we sin so often. That, that is patience. If you've never stopped and marveled at the patience of God towards you, you're missing out. You need to reflect. See, we can read the Old Testament, and we can see a bunch of fools. Like, oh, God just, just brought you through the Red Sea, and now you're going to go back? That's how I used to read the Old Testament. What a bunch of dopes. But I don't see that anymore. I see a bunch of people who need to wake up, a bunch of people like me. A bunch of sinners who only survive in that moment because of the patience of their holy God. Do you see God's patience towards you? How long-suffering He has been towards you? If you do, it should prompt gratefulness, gratitude, in your heart. I hope you are grateful to God. I hope that you will cherish God's patience towards you and let it propel you to be long-suffering towards others. If God has forgiven us of so much so often, not just one time, how can we also not forgive others around us who might fail us? How can we not be patient when such patience has been shown to us? It's part of what Pastor Cole read. You should love like I have loved you. Just patiently, among other things. We should be growing in our forbearance. Growing in our ability to be long-suffering. The Corinthians were not so. They were impatient with those who were different than them. They were impatient with those that were differently gifted. Those people in the church that have a different opinion on a conscience issue, like meat, sacrificed idols, or whatever our modern application of that might be. How often are we tempted to be like the Corinthians, growing impatient with the people sitting in the pews around us? We don't want to give them the time of day, or we don't want to respect them, we don't want to forbear with their weaknesses, their immaturities. Why don't they Get better. Quit doing that. They're not meeting our standards, and we don't want to show them grace. We want to write them off, ignore them, simply view them as less gifted, less discerning, less wise, less mature than me. It's just not patient. So it's not loving. So let us not grow weary of doing good particularly in showing loving patience, which has so generously and repeatedly been shown to each of us by God Himself.
Love is patient, not easily angered. It's not easily triggered. It's not, it doesn't demand unrealistic timelines of change. It's not demanding that people do more than they can do. It's not overworking them, cracking the whip and driving them from behind. It's not what we're called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to demonstrate love to one another because God has loved us first. Being patient with one another because God has been patient with us. And one way that we grow in patience is by reflecting upon the patience that God has shown to us and is showing to us, even now, in this moment, week by week in this church. We are served the same gospel from the same Bible every week. And the church has been fed that same meal for thousands of years. We're taught the same truth. In fact, at Morning View, we're blessed every week to see the same truth pictured in the Lord's Supper. Every week. And how many of us have been able to move beyond our need for that same message every week? How many of us don't need that reminder every week? None of us have matured beyond that need. And yet, God in His loving patience feeds you at the weekly gathering with a weekly sermon, with a weekly picture of forgiveness and of good news. That is patience. He's not chastising us for our slowness to grow. He's gently, forbearantly, patiently feeding us the food that is needful for us so that we might be sustained on the journey. That's the patience of our God. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're loving Him, if you're committed to the truth found in God's Word, the apostolic teaching, if you're devoted to fellowship with the body of Christ and to breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to join us in the Lord's Supper. If you haven't yet loved Christ and obeyed Him in baptism, then let the plates pass. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You are love and indeed You are patient. We thank You for Your forbearance with us, great sinners. We thank You for this picture of Your patience towards us. We pray that it would continue to feed us and that it would help make us more patient with one another. Help us to love as we have been loved. Set these elements apart and build up your church through them by the power of the Holy Spirit and through faith. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.